episode of Chatty Broads with Becca and Jess. Well, hello, Broads. How are you doing today? I'm very excited because we have a returning guest, and it's one of our Broads' favorite guests. And the last time that we spoke to this individual was around when Christmas. When was that? Around Christmas time, right before... Is that 2019? Yes. Just before the apocalypse? <laughs> before no, not 2019. Yes, we will not speak its name. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I'm assuming you know by the voice, Peter Rollins is back. Oh, thank you for having me back. Am I an honorary broad? I, yeah, officially, yes, thank you. 100%. I'm an broad. Brilliant. Thank oh, no, you. everyone, you're, you're a broad. Okay. I mean, if you will accept being a broad. And I happily, happily... <laughs> Yes. Thank goodness. <laughs> Definitely give a quick little bio intro for those who maybe have forgotten about the last episode, weren't tuning in. Yes. And we have some new, time. and we have quite a few new listeners. So, yes. All right. Very good. Uh, so, I do the bio. Oh, my goodness. How do you describe yourself? <laughs> so, I'm from Ireland, from Belfast, live in Los Angeles, just actually 15 minutes from you guys. Yeah, we're kind of neighbors. From this multi million dollar studio in Beverly Hills. Let <laughs> them <laughs> uh, keep thinking that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I train in philosophy. So, I'm kind of a free freelance philosopher, um, public speaker, and I. some of my work is about helping people kind of affirm life in a richer way, find ways to c- confront the difficulties in their lives and uh, kind of live um, in a kind of freer, more meaningful way. So mm-hmm. a lot of my work is about that. But I also help people unpick difficult parts of their past, mm-hmm. their political or religious or cultural pasts. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, that's... That's kind of what I do, I think. Yeah. What does a freelance yeah. philosopher do? Yeah, you see, there's not many of them around, <laughs> to be honest. I mean, it's very, it's very rare, but that's how it started. Yeah. Like the early Greek philosophers were uh-huh. basically, it's, it's a way of saying lazy. So I'm a lazy mm-hmm. philosopher. I don't mm-hmm. want a job. Mm-hmm. I don't want to work for a living. But I want to think. <laughs> I want to think. Yeah, I, yeah. Think. I want to sit around and think and then chat and read. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and that, that's the noble tradition of philosophy. But then it became professional. And then philosophers make their living obviously through university. However, we live in a crazy world now where with YouTube and podcasts and Mm -hmm. and all of that, you can actually be a freelance thinker, a public intellectual. Um, I was doing that before podcasts and before Mm -hmm. all of that happened, but that's actually made it more and more kind of easier to do. And so there are actually, if you go onto YouTube, there's lots of these young people coming up now who are not going into university to teach. They're doing their stuff uh in this way and uh it's great to see which that's Mm. so neat yeah literally when you're talking about all this i'm like okay so when do i get my second degree in philosophy i legitimately (laughs) as you were explaining (laughs) i was like becca her wheels are turning and it's like this will be my new venture i I just how to lose your audience that's that's always the problem okay (laughs) we're not There's plenty of people who already don't like to hear me ramble, okay, but that's we good, could yep. just keep <laughs> listen. As we've talked about before, when we mentioned the last time you were on, we started to talk about The Bachelor a little bit because we yes. talked about that. And it's like, there's plenty. Like you were breaking down philosophically about this show. Oh my so. God, exactly. I forgot. We do have to have you on at some point in, in one of the Bachelor that. seasons I know. to break that. everything down. I we gotta do I it. I want to brush up on The Bachelor. I want to watch it. You know what then, we need to do is yeah. we need to do it at the top of one of the seasons so that yeah. you're not feeling overwhelmed. too overwhelmed coming in being like I don't know any yeah. of these personas yet and also some of these intro episodes I would be so fascinated to hear your perspective. Although it with. is a lot of people granted even if he didn't 
watch any of the first episodes and just watched like the final four final three Mm -hmm. like the final remember we talked last time about having you come in to do (laughs) like the final three fantasy suite episodes so we should Uh, do that and we should what if we actually did just throw them in and have them watch that episode i think that would probably be better just throw me in the deep end throw me in the sharks and i just have to learn to swim go off of the impressions (laughs) of the characters off of just one episode so true okay then we'll do that then we'll do like a part two after we do a recap but then have the pizza analysis that sounds yeah. great oh exciting so what, what do you do you guys kind of like go back and kind of look at that series but then whenever it's between series you look at different themes because it seems like you do you talk about all sorts of things you kind of well we have two yeah. episodes a week so we'd like recap the bachelor so uh, like the day after it comes out we'll break down every part of the episode and what we think about what happened mm-hmm. and then in between seasons yeah when in the off season we just kind of talk about whatever we want to talk about very good whatever so is this, is this off season then yep. that's why i'm here good mm-hmm. yeah. or second episode of the week yes. the second episodes uh, of the week we typically just talk about what we want to which is cool. A lot of spirituality, a lot of pop culture, a lot of motherhood, all of those things, whatever we're feeling. Yeah. (laughs) Wonderful. But today, and by the way, I'm a big fan of your daughter. I'm, I'm oh, one of her biggest fans. <laughs> I, I, she's I got watch a her, lot. She, she must have a lot. She gets to get her own podcast or something, you know? I mean, you know, what's funny is a lot of the listeners will be like, oh my God, you should have her come on an intro for the podcast. And I'm like, listen, <laughs> I would love that. She refuses. Is that right? I ask her, I'm like, Ember, will she's you too please? big for this. Yeah, she's yeah. A little bit, <laughs> she's she is. She is outgrowing like, you guys. Please talk to my manager. Oh, yeah. I don't know if we're on the same. No, she's yeah. just like, oh mom stop asking me i'm like okay so sorry i didn't know you had such a busy schedule do you know what ember i think could do i think she could do like an online self-help series oh um, yeah where she does motivational a motivational speaker series where she's just the one and only keynote speaker throughout. yeah i well, think that that might be a good thing direction for her. i need that in my life but yeah make sure she doesn't get a manager because she if she secretly gets a manager oh you're gonna I have know. to go through the manager to even talk I with know. her to put her onto your instagram what does ember want yeah. for breakfast let me consult with her. We'll be in the same room. I'll be taking yeah, talk, calls. Talk to my manager. Talk to my manager. <laughs> no, trust me. She'll let me know right away. This whole weekend, it was a whole. I was just like, Ember, like, I just want to sing this one song with you. And this was not even for, this was not for being, for filming. No, just, and she was just like, no, you're tiring to me. And I'm like, <laughs> all right. But when, then when I would try to sing the song, she'd be like, stop singing my song. And I'm like, you don't own the song. <laughs> She's a lot. World. We're, just, we're just living in it. Yes, it's very true. It's very true. But today we kind of wanted to get into there was a few things we wanted to talk about. Mm-hmm. Obviously, see how you've been over this past year mm-hmm. in which it's been a lot. Yeah. yeah. Or a lot of nothing. A lot of nothing. Yeah. I have to be honest, my life has been I like a lot of people's lives, like Groundhog Day, where mm-hmm. and I live a very quiet life. Um, live in downtown LA, little apartment. I I you know, I, I socialize and all of that, but, you know, I spend a lot of time just on my own reading. Mm-hmm. So for the first six months or eight months, I kind of didn't even really notice anything had changed. <laughs> and it was like, OK. But then eventually, even I started to go, maybe having people in your life maybe is an important thing. Maybe <laughs> yeah. every six months seeing somebody, you know, other yeah. people be beyond the closest people to you. So finally, I think I'm starting to go, right, I can't wait to to get out and so mm-hmm. I mean look I'm talking to you guys this is We're here. incredible I know wow. I know this is yeah. exciting for me too we talked about how like honestly having the podcast throughout this whole year has been a lifesaver yeah. for me because totally. it's been one of the only times that I'm like I'm making sure that I'm regularly connecting with someone 
um, throughout all this because I could have seen myself going very just like inward and, yeah. and full cavern and not reaching out. Yeah. So this has been definitely a way to like, you know. Well, when we were talking before we started recording about like the the social anxiety that has kind of developed from mm. not seeing people a lot. And I was I was listening to an episode of This American Life recently where the journalist and the woman she was interviewing, they both talked about how they both wanted to cancel the call, like the interview call. Mm -hmm. And they were both like gear, literally gearing up all day like, oh, I have this interview call. Like, what if it's awkward? What if there's pauses in the conversation? And, and I was like, wow, I feel that too. And I think a lot of people probably listening were like, oh, I feel that too. This like social anxiety and all these thoughts of like, what if it's what if it's weird? What if it's yeah. so, it's crazy. Because mm -hmm. yeah, because that because that exists anyway. When people go right. to a party, often people will who suffer from anxiety. Did I say the right thing? Or mm -hmm. you know, did I was I too loud or too quiet? Right. So even at the best of times, people can have social anxiety. And as you say, now that's ramped up to eleven with people not not being daily in contact with people, even with work. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's it's going to be interesting as people start to venture out again. But maybe we can have a greater conversation as a society about these like anxieties and maybe it can cause us to be more open and honest with people of like, I don't really want to see you and hang out <laughs> yes. today and it's nothing personal, but yeah. I'm feeling anxious about it. And I think mm -hmm. that if we can get to greater places of honesty like that, that can be so that's can be so good. Yeah. I was talking about that with one of my friends the other day, you know, and she was like, a lot of times I want to cancel. And I was like, oh, me too. Yeah. And then now that you say that, it makes me want to cancel less because I know I, that yeah. you're feeling the same thing. And I do that. I'm very careful whenever I want to cancel, I just say, because you can always make an, up an excuse, always. but I'm always going to, listen, I could make up an excuse, but I just don't feel like it today. And, and people respect that a lot because I think we're all feeling it. <laughs> yeah. you know, like, <laughs> and when you get the person, well, yeah, I felt exactly the same way. That's fine. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and then yeah. it's just like an endorphin rush. Like we both yes. felt the same exact thing. Well, <laughs> never see you again. Then. Yes, that's like, it. <laughs> yeah, maybe in 10, 20 years. Yeah, 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 exactly. I'll let you know then how I feel. <laughs> All right, broads, let's take a quick pause. I just have to say this. I'm an absolute snack queen. Okay, I love to snack and so does my daughter, which actually very quickly forced me to find healthy alternatives because as much as I love a good mini bag of hot Cheetos or a large bag of hot Cheetos, I would prefer not to start my daughter on them at the ripe age of four when she started becoming a snack queen. Um, and on my quest to discover healthy snack options, I discovered Thrive Market. And oh my Lord, talk about a one-stop shop for all things healthy living, the holy grail of good for you products, supplies, and food. I know just yesterday, Grayson was actually asking, he's like, where do you get copper tongue scrapers? And I was like, probably Thrive. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, literally yesterday, I was like, Thrive. One quick moment. Um, <laughs> they're the ultimate online membership-based market on a mission to make healthy living easy and affordable for everyone. And like Jess said, they offer it all. On Thrive Market, you can shop for everything from organic food and groceries to clean beauty to safe supplements, even non-toxic home supplies and clean wine. And all for amazing, amazing prices. Because mm -hmm. on average, Thrive Market members save $32 on each order compared to grocery store prices. So that's really worth it. Yeah, and this is the things you'd be shopping for anyways, which is so wild to me, the amount that I save. I kid you not, the very first time I ever had a Thrive Market order, I saved $67. Granted, I was doing a pantry overhaul, so it wasn't all of the, you know, the snacks. But the savings was wild. And again, all things that I would regularly get 
$67 savings. Um, and not only is Thrive Market good for you, it's good for our planet. Orders of over $49 or more ship for free and are delivered with carbon neutral shipping from their zero waste warehouse. Thrive Market is just incredible. They're an amazing company overall. Totally. Join Thrive Market today to get 25% off your first order and an exclusive free gift. The only way to get this offer is by going to thrivemarket.com slash chatty. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash chatty. To get the exclusive order of 25% off your first order and a free gift, can't get this offer anywhere else, go to thrivemarket.com slash chatty. All right. I know, I know it might be hard to believe this because Becca and I are so serious on the podcast. So serious. But we're actually kids at heart. <laughs> <laughs> like big kids. Okay. Obviously we're just, we're, we're obviously kidding. We're not always so serious. We're obviously always children. Um, and it probably isn't a big surprise that we love games, puzzles, really anything and everything fun. And one of our current favorites is Best Fiends, the digital puzzle game with a world full of lovable characters, thousands of levels, and so much content being added each week, it never gets old. What better way to numb yourself from the existential dread of <laughs> humanity, right? And that's on facts. <laughs> Best fiends! We're both obsessed with this game. We have a little competition going right now. I'm not sure uh, who's winning at the moment. I mean, I have an idea. Uh -huh. Here, Flip. Go um, ahead, go ahead, go on. But anyway, uh, it gets intense. You don't need any Wi-Fi to play, so that makes it super convenient. And it's not like other games where you have to to be playing every single day to keep your status or actually understand what's going on because you can play as much or as little as you want and it's just as fun no matter how often you decide to play. Mm -hmm. I like to play when my brain needs a break from work or when I'm waiting in a Zoom waiting room for another meeting that could have been an email. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, there's a good reason Best Fiends has already been downloaded and loved 100 million times. It is the greatest. That's a lot. That's a lot of downloads. Oh, okay. Download Best Fiends for free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Well, and then the other thing we wanted to talk about is, you know, something I've noticed is that over the past year, with the lack of normalcy, the lack of socializing, all of that, holidays almost seem to hold, hold more gravity and more weight. Mm -hmm. So I've noticed it on Instagram. Like, for St. Patrick's Day, people were posting St. Patrick's Day photos for like two weeks. Uh. For Christmas, it was like all of December. It was like Christmas posts. For Halloween, people had like five different outfits they were posting photos of over two weeks. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I think holidays have become almost grander because we're trying to grasp this sense of one just having fun mm -hmm. yeah. but then also a sense of rhythm and ritual yeah. within a years that have no sense of of rhythm of normal of normalcy and rhythm mm -hmm. so we wanted yeah. to kind of talk about um the myths and rituals and kind of the legend of Easter and uh, yeah. what are the implications for our lives yeah, now? We just, we, I was just telling Pete, I'm like, we didn't even realize that it was like Good Friday, Good Friday, Good Friday and Easter coming up. And, um, you know, as many of you broads know, Beck and I raised in a evangelical Christian, um, evangelical Christian homes, but uh, obviously that's something that a large amount of people celebrate, whether it just be the Easter bunny or whether yeah. it be, you know, through the Christian cat or Catholic practice or whatnot. Um, but yeah, we wanted yeah. to kind of talk about that. Yeah. And it's very true. We're, we're liturgical creatures. Um, you know, we have rituals, whether it's every Thursday meeting a friend for coffee or mm -hmm. every Friday night, the poker game with our friends, mm -hmm. or there, there's certain liturgies of life. And when you throw something like COVID mm -hmm. into the mix, we suddenly lose so much of that and um, it can kind of throw us for a loop. So mm -hmm. yeah, that's, that is interesting. And so Easter, yes, fantastic. Um, 
I, there's kind of, I was thinking about this when you messaged me. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's three ways that you can look at Easter. Um, obviously, there's so many people have reflected on it because it's such a big thing over the years. But the first one is um, historically. So people can look at it in a historical sense. Who is this figure, Jesus? What is the, did the crucifixion happen? What did it mean? So there's the historical. And that's been very influential within certain romantic and humanist and progressive circles. Mm -hmm. Then there's what you could call the religious interpretation. And that's the interpretation that has been most influential. You see that that's in the, in the church, the idea of like a God coming into the world, the religious kind of connotations. But the third is the, I think the most interesting and it's the least talked about, but it's very influential, especially in the last 300 years, it's begun to become very influential. And that's the philosophical reading of the, of the crucifixion mm -hmm. and of Easter. And I thought that would be a good one for me to jump into, if yeah, that's totally. all right for yes, you guys. Yeah, um, please. Um, so I was thinking, I'll tell you a parable that I think kind of captures this. Some of the, by the way, the, when I talk about the philosophical reading, this starts in around the 17th century with the philosopher Hegel. And then uh, Nietzsche very famously takes it up in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. And although it's not very well known, it's actually... It has had a massive impact on the world in existentialism. The philosophy called existentialism is a type of Easter philosophy, death of God philosophy, and in psychoanalysis, uh, particularly French psychoanalysis. So the, these ideas have had this impact, not in the religious world, but in the kind of like academic mm -hmm. world. So this parable is um, about this guy called Seamus, right? So this guy called Seamus loses his job and he doesn't have very much money and he's very freaked out, right? And he's a very pious man. So he, he prays one day and he goes, God, I'm broke. I've lost my job. I'm going to be kicked out of my home. And he hears a voice from heaven. Mm -hmm. And the voice from heaven says, Seamus, sell everything you have, get the money together and drive to Vegas. So Seamus goes, okay, right? Pious man, he does it, sells his house, sells his car, sells everything, then rents a car, drives to Vegas. When he gets there, he looks up to heaven. And he hears this voice from God saying, go into the hard rock casino, play one hand of poker. So Seamus goes in, sits down at the poker table and he gets dealt seven, two off. Terrible hand, right? So he's going to, he's going to drop worst. out. The worst. It's the worst hand. Oh, you're a poker player, right? You know that, yeah. It's literally the worst hand you can get. And he's like, right, I better not play it. But he hears a voice from heaven. God says, go all in. Seamus is all in on seven, two off, all in. So pre-flop pushes uh -huh. all the uh -huh. money in. And two more people go all in with him. And the other person has pair of queens. The other person is ace king. He's like, oh no. But the flop comes, he hits a seven. And then on the river, second seven, he has mm -hmm. a set of sevens, he wins. Seamus says, can't believe it, right? Takes the money, hears his voice from heaven, says, go to the blackjack table, play one hand of blackjack. So Seamus goes to blackjack, he gets dealt 16. He's like, oh no, 16. <laughs> he says, I better stick. Here's a voice from heaven saying, no. I asked for another card, another hit. So he says, another card, gets an ace, it's like, yeah, 17. He says, a better stick. Here's a voice from God saying, no, hit again. Hits again, another ace, 18. He's like, what? God says, hit again. Hit again, he gets a three, 21 wins. Yep, 18, 19, 20, 21. Yep, that's right, so he hits. <laughs> yeah, and uh, he says, what? I don't believe it. And then he hears a voice from heaven again, saying, right, take all your money, go to the roulette table, put everything on seven. So Seamus takes all of his money, goes to the roulette table, puts everything on seven. 
And he watches the ball bounce around. Rolls and rolls and rolls. Bounces, bounces, bounces. And then hits the seven. Seamus is crying. Like crying. He's, he looks up to heaven. He says, I don't believe it. And he hears this voice from heaven saying, I don't believe it either. You're the luckiest motherfucker I've ever seen. <laughs> right? Now, this parable <laughs> offers you the secret of life. Right? If you understand this parable, you'll understand the secret of life and I think the philosophical meaning of the crucifixion. Which is, so in the crucifixion and in Easter, you have this idea that God, right? And God is the symbol of the absolute perfection, right? God is the infinite, the perfect, the one the that lacks the yeah. 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 It's the ultimate Instagram model, right? It's the <laughs> one who has everything, right? So God is the ultimate Instagram model, enters the world, and we want to be like them. And we want to symbolically identify with the absolute. The absolute gives us the answer. Our lives are rubbish, but we want to identify with God. And then on the cross, there's this notion of God experiencing a lack within God. God says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken mm. me? So God experiences a lack, mm. right? Now, this is philosophically very interesting. What this means is, in the, in the story I told you of Seamus, he thinks that he's caught up in contingency and, and God has the answer. And then he discovers that God's caught up in contingency as well. God's just as in the dark as everybody else. Mm. So philosophically speaking... The one of the readings of Easter is the idea that we are always looking for a God, some perfection, whether it's money, fame, uh, the right person to go out with, whatever it is, it's going to fulfill us. Mm -hmm. And the idea is in, in the crucifixions, the experience of realizing that the thing we think is perfect is not perfect as well. They're self-divided as well. Mm -hmm. So the Instagram model, to use that example, that we think is the perfect life, we discover that they or don't have the perfect life. They're mm -hmm. worried about growing old. They're worried about their numbers. They're, 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 they're putting on a fake kind of existence. Mm -hmm. And the weird thing, this is called grace. Because so, grace is the experience in which you feel deep down in your being that you don't have to do anything. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to strive for perfection. You don't have to do anything. You can just be. And the moment that you realize that the thing that you think is perfect, right, the moment you realize that that's not perfect either is the moment you experience grace and go, we're all in the, we're all in the grit and grime together. Mm. We're all in life together, struggling. And so the message of Easter, and sorry, I've gone on for a, a bit, but I'll, I'll finish with this, is the message of Easter can be seen as freedom from the tyranny of happiness, freedom from the tyranny of certainty and satisfaction, Freedom from the tyranny of thinking that there is something out there, whether it's God, money, fame, a man, a woman, a job, whatever it is you think is going to work. When you realize that, oh, actually, we're all struggling. Life, there is no perfection. We all have to uh, live in this, in this mess together. But actually finding that not unhappy or despairing, but finding resurrection and that, finding that to be a beautiful and life-giving experience. Mm. Does that make sense at all? It does. Yeah. I read it when you're talking about like, and then comparing it to an Instagram model, it yeah. made me think of like, uh, all these celebrities and all these like pop artists that recently have put out these documentaries. And I feel like everyone then connects with them so much because they don't put out these documentaries where it's just all glamorous it's typically mm -hmm. like here are all my mental and emotional struggles that i deal with here is me breaking down on the road because my mom won't call me yes. and there's mm -hmm. that glimpse of like 
they present so perfectly and there's no way I could ever be or attain anything that they are. And I have then this moment of seeing them also hurt. So then I don't feel so inadequate in my not being a superstar. Yes. And you don't think that now if I was, if I just had what they had, then I would be fine. Right. You realize you wouldn't be because even if you had a, you know, more money, which is nice and you had a nicer house, it wouldn't fix your anxieties, your your phobias, your fears, all of those, in fact, often fame exacerbates those things, you know. Mm-hmm. So you're exactly right. The moment that you realize that I went to a party, I went to a party last year and um, it was somebody very, very famous, very, very wealthy, hundreds of millions. So I was at this party. I, I, I didn't know them personally. I have an Irish musician friend who um, uh, who knows who knows her. And I was at this party and it was kind of going like, I'm, I'm seeing on the inside the, the American dream. I'm seeing on the inside how amazing it is. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't. <laughs> it was a bit rubbish and it was just a bit embarrassing. And it was just, and, and it was wonderful to see because in one sense, I could fantasize, oh, if only I had the money that person had or the fame that person had, oh, it'd be wonderful. But then I was inside it and I was going, oh, well, you know, it's a, it's, it's a nice life, but mm-hmm. actually it's no different. In fact, in many ways, um, the more you give yourself over to, say, for example, money, the more money you want to make, the more you give yourself over to fame, the more fame you want. It's like feeding something and it gets hungrier and hungrier and hungrier. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas this is about kind of freeing oneself from that frenetic pursuit. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's also very disappointing, I think, when just having, I remember when I was a kid, all I wanted was to be famous, mm-hmm. like, or to have this, or celebrity was always very enticing. And then granted, I didn't become, you know, like Britney Spears or anything like that, but going and on the Bachelor. she did very well, you know, she's very emotionally stable, <laughs> oh, you know. Yeah. Oh, things <laughs> turned out, yeah. things yeah. turned out oh. really great for her. Yeah. Um, but yes, but you experienced But then I experienced on the fame, mm-hmm. however fleeting or on whatever scale, but regardless, it was still... I experienced that and I have never had a more difficult time following mm. that experience because I, w- it was very disappointing yes. mm. because I was like, now I'm achieving career success, money, recognition, um, a bunch of Instagram likes, all that stuff. And it was like this, wow, I really expected that I was going to feel better about myself or I was going to feel like, uh, I guess I wouldn't say I expected it to feel whole, but I expected it to be feel exciting and feel good, and for that to last, yes, more than like a week or two. And that that very experience you had, philosophically speaking, can be described as the death of God. Mm. It's the experience of the death mm. of of what mm. you thought would be the fulfilling thing. Mm. And at first, it's despairing. So there's two deaths that have to happen. The first is. You know, I maybe I'm attracted to somebody. I think if only I could be with them, everything would be great. Mm. And and I can't be, and it doesn't work. But then, and then I, I so I die to it. I go, I can't be with them. But then the second death is the realization that actually that's a fantasy. That mm-hmm. was just that I was caught up in a fantasy, mm. and that the fantasy needs to die. And that's where you, it's almost like it's you could call it the failure within success, and then the success within the failure. So you you're successful. And then you see the failure within it. Oh, that success was a failure. But then you embrace the failure 
And in embracing the failure, you go, that's the success. Right, because then you yes. realize that there's no such thing as the success that you thought existed. Exactly. So then you're freed from it. Yes. You're freed from the pursuit of it because you've already gotten there and you realize that it doesn't even exist. It's a mirage. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that's resurrection. That's the moment where it's the mm. death of death. It's like, it's where you find, it sounds so weird where you say like, you don't get what you want. It's it's almost like there's a sacred object that we love, but there's something sacred that we love. And then when we realize that that sacred object doesn't exist, at first that's despairing. And then we find that the sacred is not an object that we love, but the depth dimension we experience in the act of love itself. Mm. So we experience actually where, where life is meaningful is in the struggle itself. In the pursuit. Right. In right. the pursuit. Right. In the pursuits. And that's called joy in mm. theological language. Joy is the kind of happiness of not getting what you want. Joy is this experience of the struggle. The problem we have, but is without experiencing the death of God, we continue to think that it's the end goal that works. We continue to think, oh, if only I get to that end mm. point, then I'll be happy. Not realizing that, I suppose it's like bringing up a kid. I don't have kids, but you know, if you thought that the end goal of having a kid, when I'll be happy is when I see them secure in a job mm -hmm. as an mm -hmm. adult, you're going to miss the, the fun of the actually bringing up the kid. Actually, all the joy of, of a child is the process of the difficulties and the fun and the, the process, the process. Mm -hmm. That's it. And yeah. that's actually where all of the, the enjoyment is. And in fact, there's something probably a bit sad about when your child finally is growing up. I mean, there's probably a joy to it, but it'll be so a little sure. bit of sadness because it's kind of like that end point um, is, is, you know, that's not where all the joy of being a mother or a father mm -hmm. was located. Right. Yeah. Uh, when you're talking about to this joy of kind of like the joy of this pursuit and this longing. I also think that that's creation. That joy is also the act of creation. When you're mm -hmm. trying to pursue something, mm -hmm. you're trying to make something happen. So you're doing right. You're creating ideas. You're creating, you know, paths to get this place to this place where you want to go. And that that is the bread and butter of existence, right? It's exactly. the creation and the movement and the 100%, shifting. 100%. So like in my in my work, so I, I'm developing something that's called parotheology. And um, what is parotheology? Well, it doesn't, it's not anything. It's just a name, right? But every time I try to explain it, like do a seminar or do a talk, I always feel, because every time I do it, I go, I could have said that better. Mm. I could have. I could have articulated it better. So I'm constantly experiencing failure, but the failure is generative because then I go back and I do something else. But the joy is in the constant failure mm -hmm. and the constant creation and the realization that I will never be able to adequately express what this is because it comes into being through the creative process itself. Mm -hmm. Right. So to enjoy the creative process. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And then when I'm dead, maybe it will be able to be encircled as a as a defined thing but not while i'm alive mm -hmm. now uh something my dad's always said and i don't want to um i don't want this to come off as romanticizing poverty or yeah. legitimate struggle but my dad has always said he was like you know like the most he's very financially successful and a really successful businessman and he's like you know sometimes i just miss those days like where I was in my early 30s with your mom and we had to make budgets for trips 
and we had to figure out how each of us were going to eat on this vacation for less than, you know, 10 bucks for each of us for the whole day. And I miss when we were trying to find like a house that was within our budget. And when, when I was trying, when I was struggling with my businesses and he was like, and I long for that now and I miss it. And, and I wish I could go back and enjoy that more. And again, not to, I think that we're talking about a status where your basic needs are met. You know, we're we're not, we're not talking about um, poverty and, you know, a, a painful struggle, but this, this trying to work through problems, problem solving yes. is so key to joy in our human existence is trying to yeah. s- figure things out. A hundred percent. So yeah, like, so whenever not having, say being poor is almost like a form of depression you don't have. And that, and if you're very poor, it's very, very painful and destructive. If you're very rich, that's called melancholy. Melancholy, huh. so depression is kind of the sadness of not having what you want. Melancholy is the sadness of having what you want. So melancholy is when you you suddenly, you get everything and there's no longer any sacrifice. The really sweet spot you're talking about is that that place where we have basic needs met, but there's also sacrifice and movement. And that's where real joy is. So melancholy can be deeply... It's a weird form of depression because it's not the it's not the pain of not being able to of maybe being kicked out of your house or the pain of not right. knowing how to feed your kids that. Right. It's just but it's this weird living death where you're sitting by a pool with everything you could possibly want and somehow no longer able to desire your desire. Do you think that's the American experience? Like do you think that that's what Americans struggle with is this constant melancholy yeah i think yeah there's they're both connected like either you're sad because you want so you're you're fantasizing if only i had all of this money Mm -hmm. then i'd be happy so you're sad because you're you're caught in that fantasy or you get the fantasy and you're sad because you're melancholic because you got it so yeah you're unfortunately it's an impossible caught between a rock and a hard place Mm -hmm. and that's what i mean by the death of god is it's the breaking of that very fantasy structure so that you, you're no longer caught in either of those positions. Um, it's almost like the world's a massive vending machine full of products that promise happiness. And the answer to life is not to get the right product out of the vending machine, whether it's a Mercedes or whether it's this God or whether whatever, but it's to find a way to take a sledgehammer to the vending machine itself, to break free of that very form of desire in which is say you're either unhappy because you don't have or unhappy because you do. Can I give an example of this actually? I saw a movie recently called Greenland. Have you heard of Greenland? No, no. You you know, they didn't talk about it very much. All these movies are coming out and they go straight on the streaming services. So I just discovered it and it's a disaster movie. Um, And it, but it, 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 it shows you what fantasy is. So in terms of psychoanalysis, fantasy is interesting. What is fantasy? In psychoanalysis, the simplest way to describe it is fantasy is what enables you to desire an object that you desire. So um, it sounds weird at first, but if you say, for example, you really want to buy a new house, you really want to buy a new house, and you're looking at in on the computer and you're looking at the magazines and you're, you're saving up money, you're desiring the house. But once you get the house, you no longer desire it. You've got what you desire, but you no longer desire what you desire because what allowed you to desire it was actually saving the money, looking on the computer, going around the houses. That's actually what you enjoyed, (laughs) you you know? So you get what you desire, but you lose the desire for what you desire. This is a problem many of us face. So Greenland, and if this is, there's a very small spoiler in this. So if you want, 
don't listen for five minutes, fast forward, <laughs> very small spoiler, but this is a movie about a family that there were desires no longer functioning. So it's a, 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 a mother, a father and a child. Mm -hmm. uh, he's had some kind of affair, but you also find out that basically there was no desire in the relationship. Right? Mm -hmm. So there's no desire in the relationship. Then there's a world uh, of a catastrophe, basically a world extinction catastrophe. These asteroids are going to destroy the whole world. And at the end, you know, they're trying to get to a safe place. And at the end of the movie, desire is reinstituted within the nuclear family. The movie is basically not about a catastrophe. It's about how to bring desire back into the family. Mm. And that family needed a world extinction event in order to bring desire back. So mm. you have the family, no desire, then they have to go through all of this struggle together. And now they desire what they desire again. Mm. So he desires her, she desires him, the child desires them both. That's what fantasy does. And so the problem is when you get what you want, you, the fantasy ends. And actually the fantasy is what allows you to desire the thing. So you no longer desire what you desire. That's why a lot of couples end up in desireless relationships because the fantasy it's is gone. gone. Sure. So you have to reintroduce fantasy in some sort of way. That was a very convoluted thing, but it is interesting that yeah. we kind of wonder why, why is it that when you get what you really want, you no longer want it. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of because you've got rid of the very thing that makes you want it, the mm -hmm. very struggle. That's why relationships have to find ways to bring struggle back in. I think kids are like that sometimes. I think a lot of yeah. parents have kids partly bring struggle back into the relationship mm -hmm. and difficulty and makes desire function again. You mm -hmm. know? Oh, it's that, that absolute tendency when everything is going perfectly well in my relationship that I all of a sudden kind of want to be like, you know, it's been bugging me. Like, yes, like, I want to throw a fight in. And yeah. it's very this like subconscious, like I'm not really upset at him, but it's almost this weird, there's this part of me that wants to spice something up again. Exactly. That or like what be. I do where I'm like, what if I get another degree? Yeah. What if uh, I, yes. you know, what Let's if I challenge? Gonna, yeah. yeah. Yes. And, and there's like, there's unhealthy forms of that, but there's healthy forms of that. Mm. And in a healthy relationship, it's where it's acknowledged. You're like, yeah, see, see when everything's going good. I like to like throw a plate yeah. get everything going <laughs> yeah, exactly. a little bit you know make you a bit jealous or yeah. something like that so and that yeah. and the reason and it, the truth is if you don't realize that mm -hmm. consciously mm -hmm. it comes up unconsciously mm -hmm. and when it comes up unconsciously that's when it comes up in a dangerous way okay. so if you're if you don't if you can't work flow with that it it, it bites you in the ass mm -hmm. like you know and it'll do something very negative that makes so, yeah. a lot of sense. So what's the antidote then to that? Is it just to create new goals and new challenges? Or how do you navigate that? Because is there, is there a point too where one needs to become okay with not being mm. in that constant flux of yes. desire? Yeah. This is why actually the Easter story is so interesting to me philosophically is because the logic of the Easter story is that you realize that the absolute is self-divided. And so that's what what that means is I think this the salvation, the, the movement is you realize that nothing is going to get rid of the struggle of life. But secondly, you realize that you wouldn't want to get rid of the struggle of life. That's the other mm. key is that what makes life meaningful is sacrifice. Mm. So what we we don't understand is we often think that we want to get rid of sacrifice. Like if only I could live a life without sacrifice where I got everything I wanted. But actually, it's it's 
it's buying people presents, which is a sacrifice of giving of a gift. It's working hard without being recognized for it even, but knowing it is for the good of your family or friends. Or It's it's actually weirdly sacrifice itself where, where value is created. Religions ah. have traditionally been very good at that. They've always tried to have sacrifice embedded within them. Sure. We live in a, a culture where sacrifice, we think we want to get rid of it. We want to get over it and mm-hmm. overcome it. So for me, what you're saying is, yeah, it's it's that partly recognizing that sacrifice and struggle is where joy and meaning and depth comes from and also simultaneously going and there is no there is no utopic future mm-hmm. or there is no oceanic past of oneness it's it's like we can make the world a better in fact my argument ultimately is a desire for wholeness and completeness certainty and satisfaction is precisely what makes society so dangerous and destructive the more we seek certainty, the more anxious ah. we are. The more we seek mm. um, uh, uh, satisfaction, the more dissatisfied we are. The more we try to seek purity, the more we find impure people. Um, you know, so I, th- interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like maybe if we're constantly seeking unity, what that might. Uh, f- not that it's a bad pursuit, but maybe instead we might be trying to get everyone to think the same way. Yeah, yeah. Or, right. you know, and, and believe the same thing. Dismissing actual, like, trauma that people have experienced and, like, ignoring, I would imagine, to a certain extent, that everyone has had different upbringings and lives and just be like, no, yeah. we can all just work it out and be good together. It's or like, even but, just, like, or I was even just thinking that the implicit belief then is that there is one correct way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, which I've uh, seen a lot in the past couple of years in which I have found myself falling into a lot is this trap of ideology of this is the right way of thinking. Mm -hmm. And I I see it a lot on the internet too of like, this is, and it's not that it's wrong and it's not that this other thing isn't wrong that you're trying to combat, but this idea of an objective truth or the way things are or the way things need to be done and this is the only way that things can be done correctly, I don't think that has good outcomes. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the things that's very common, uh, whenever you have the idea of a wholeness and a perfection and you want to be right or you want to be pure, what you have to do is you have to um, repress and disavow your own impurities, your own angers, your own frustrations. So the simplest way of seeing that is obviously in kids, where a kid says there's a monster under the bed, right? Mm-hmm. And the monster isn't under the bed, the monster is inside them. But what they've had to do is they've had to, what's called project project their own disavowed feelings out onto an object mm-hmm. and say it's out there. By the way, that's a great way if you want to find out how a kid thinks. You never ask the kid, you ask their teddy bear, right? If you say, mm-hmm. say to right. a kid, do you like daddy? Go like, I think daddy's great, right? And you say, what is, does teddy bear like daddy? No, teddy bear's scared of daddy. He's like, oh, teddy bear knows the answer, right? Mm-hmm. The kid doesn't know the truth, the teddy bear knows the truth, right? Mm-hmm. So we project. And one of the things we do very often, and it's called projective identification, is where say I have unresolved anger and frustration within me, but I don't want to face it. I project it onto you. But here's the interesting thing is what I do is I I see you as bad. I see you as angry and I start poking at you, right? So I start like saying that you're angry and bad. And then eventually you blow up at me and you go, I'm not. I become the manifestation yes. of that projection. So yeah, and that's the identification. So what I've done is I'm identi- I've projected out I've created, you're now a self-fulfilling prophecy and now I'm 
able to see my own anger, but in a disavowed way. So I'm able to disavow it from myself. Mm. This for me is very dangerous for society, that we need a place where we can actually confront our own angers and frustrations and doubts and unknowing and not project it onto others mm. and then make them carry it. Otherwise, doesn't that end up in a form of self-righteousness, right? Yeah. Because it's like you are the disgusting thing that I knew you were all along and that I hated. Mm. And then it sort of confirms within yourself like, and I am not like that yes. bad person. Yes, 100%. I mean, if you, I see this sadly all the time on social media. It's very funny where some people who love to talk about love, love to talk about love and tolerance and beauty, the next tweet are like ripping someone to pieces. <laughs> and then the next tweet talking about love. And, and it's, it's kind of like, it's not that they're a hypocrite. It's not that they're like lack intelligence or anything, but it potentially is protective identification. It's potentially that there's some aspect of themselves. We all do this. I do this. Some aspect of myself that I am not able to face so I put it onto somebody else. And then the, the great trick of projective identification is if you are the self-fulfilling prophecy, it's like in an argument with a partner, you go like, you're annoyed with me. No, I'm not. You're annoyed with me. No, I'm not. You're annoyed well, with now me. now I am. Yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> just go, no, I'm not. They go, there you go. There you go. You're annoyed with me. Oh my God, that's me. classic yeah. me. <laughs> it's a great way because yeah. what you've done is you've, you know, your own anger is now in somebody yeah. else. You've yeah. actually put it in somebody else. And then you're able to go, that's you. Whereas what we have to do is go, oh, that's me. Oh, and that's, that's why it's always important to look at our enemies and ask ourselves a very difficult question, which mm. is, is my enemy the disavowed face of myself? And it's a very hard question to ask, but it's like, is that the unknown face, my unknown face? Um, and, and, but when you ask that question, it can be profoundly transformative. Mm. I, I, I remember my mom telling me when I was a kid, and I think a lot of people say this, but like the people that you don't like, yeah. it's usually like the mirror of something you don't like yes. in yourself. Yes. So I always try to remember that when I don't like someone, there's plenty of people I don't like. And then I'm like, well, there's plenty of things that I don't like about myself. So maybe I'm seeing that aspect of them in, we mentioned this last week, but I'll just say it again here because I think it's so interesting. We mentioned it on the podcast before, but I had a group of friends get together and then I asked each person after who who did you like in the group the most and who did you not like, who did you like the least in the yeah. group? And everyone had a different answer. And what does that say? Does it say anything about the other people in the group? No, it says so much more about the individual. That's right? very good. A hundred percent. Yes. Mm -hmm. There's, like Han once said, a psychoanalyst said, like we said, I think, he, I think he said this is that uh, we always love our neighbor like we love ourselves. We just don't love ourselves. Right. So in other words, yeah, like right. the, the, you know, right. in, a, in a really weird way, we're always treating the other weirdly in a way that we, that we think of ourselves in a disavowed way, yeah. in a repressed way. And it, it, it's so whenever you hear it, you kind of understand it and you kind of see it. But it's weird because in daily life, we completely pretend this isn't the case. Um, yeah, and it's it's kind of easier not to. It's easier not yeah. to. Exactly. It's like yeah. if we're gonna go yeah. there, you have to unpack yeah. a lot more that may be not be convenient in the moment. Mm -hmm. Okay, broads, another quick pause. Uh, has we spent a lot of time at home in the last year? A lot of us picked up new hobbies. I, for instance, really tried to bring some variety into my cooking that once was not really there. And let me tell you, it's easier said than done. 
Okay, unless you use HelloFresh, which I am obsessed with. HelloFresh, they get you fresh pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door. I absolutely love food prep services. Each week, there are over 25 different recipes to choose from on HelloFresh, including vegetarian, extra gourmet, ooh, and even kid-friendly options, too. Mm-hmm. And if you're a creature of habit when it comes to cooking, you can say goodbye to monotony because HelloFresh delivers the pre-measured ingredients. There's no risk of wasted ingredients ingredients you might not cook with again. And the recipes are really simple to follow. Pretty much anyone can do it. And the money you'll save is insane broads. Using HelloFresh is 28% cheaper than shopping at your local grocery store and 72% cheaper than eating at a restaurant without sacrificing any of the quality Mm -hmm. or fun. It's been so much fun cooking with HelloFresh because it allows my daughter who is super interested in cooking right now to get involved because everything is pre-measured. I don't have to worry about any mishaps and she loves being able to quote unquote cook for her family. It's really been the sweetest thing to watch this past year, and we love all the meals. But can I say hands down, our favorite uh, lately has been the chicken orzo with roasted zucchini. Okay. Ooh, that sounds yum. It is. I scan the menu every single week waiting for it to come back. It's so delicious. Mm-hmm. But there are so many, so many, so many good recipes. Go to HelloFresh.com slash Chatty12 and use code Chatty12 for 12 free meals. Wow. Including shipping. You heard me right. 12 free meals plus free shipping at HelloFresh.com slash Chatty12. Coupon code Chatty12. Amazing. I hope that that's what the Easter Bunny brings me yeah. this year. Mm. Um, so, Brods, I Ooh, love... Speaking of something I hope the Easter Bunny brings oh me. Oh, my gosh. Speaking of something... I. I love adding in little moments of luxury to my everyday. There's no reason that watching Netflix in your pajamas can't be a luxurious experience, right? If you're not um, following my logic, I have two words for you. Jenny Kane. There's a good chance you already know and love Jenny Kane for their amazing closet staples. But did you also know that Jenny Kane makes everything you need to turn your home office bathroom, really any room, into the luxurious space of your dreams? Just like their clothing items, Jenny Kane's home products and furniture are focused on texture, material, and quality. And it is very obvious. Their furniture is stunningly beautiful. Mm -hmm. And because they feature natural materials, they get better with time. So no matter what area of your home needs a hint of luxury, Jenny Kane has the perfect addition. Addition. Uh, swaps of any size can make the biggest difference when it comes to your living spaces. You know, just some candles and throw pillows all the way to new sofas and tablescape items. I mean, Jenny Kane has the timeless pieces you need to add some luxury into your everyday. Mm -hmm. I wasn't kidding when I said watching Netflix in your pajamas is a luxurious experience. I throw on my shearling Jenny Kane slippers, wrap myself in one of those cashmere collections, okay? And boom, I'm living the life of luxury. It is fantastic. Um, I've also got my eye on their pillows for my mom's birthday gift that's in a couple weeks. And I just think everyone deserves a nice pair of slippers for real. Becca and I are obsessed and we know you will be too. You have got to check out Jenny Kane. Trust us. Find your forever pieces at JennyKane.com. Get 15% off your first order when you use code chatty at checkout. That's 15% off your first order at J-E-N-N-I. It's Jenny with an I. K-A-Y-E ne.com promo code chatty basically both names are not spelled how you would expect jenny with a y and then k-a-y-n-e surprising and luxurious yes (laughs) i mean this is so uh, central to what's called purity culture 
Um, so purity culture and people in America know, I think it became like a religious thing about not having sex before right. marriage. Right, one of our right. favorite things to talk Is about. That right? Oh, yes. great. Oh, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> I think last time I was here, I talked about how in America, they created the technology to help young people have sex. And it was a purity ring. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. you put the purity ring on and suddenly that person is yes. unavailable. So uh-huh. it really makes them desirable. So mm-hmm. like, that's a great trick. Um, <laughs> but the funny thing about purity culture is actually purity culture in its in its wider sense is something religions have always been interested in, which is what is pure and what is impure? Mm. What is dirty and what is clean? And religions have always been, and actually literally about that as well, what to do with human waste. So you see back in ancient religions, it's all about what do we do with waste? So purity culture at its widest sense is just when society says who are clean and who are unclean, Mm. who is what, and, and, Technically, we often we always try to see ourselves as clean and we always try to find somebody who's unclean and we project all of our own uncleanliness onto another and say our, the uncleanness is out there. Funnily enough, Christianity is one of the first critiques of purity culture. So the Apostle Paul said, um, we are the trash of the world. So what he was doing was he was saying that we are the dirt and the trash of the world. In other words, our community is not pure, it's impure. And interestingly, he got that from... I think some of the writings in the Gospels where Jesus was always challenging what was clean and unclean mm. and, and what the elite kind of like educated establishment thought was clean and unclean. Jesus was always kind of playing with that. So I think we live in a time of, we're always living a time where purity culture can really take hold. And I think the challenge for us is to go, maybe we're all a bit dirty. And mm. actually maybe the a, a healthier society is one in which we can tolerate our own our own dirt and by weirdly tolerating it we actually dissipate it mm. we you know hmm. so. it's very interesting to think about that in terms of what's been happening in the world in the past year right of mm. this idea of like clean and unclean when it comes to like contamination when yeah. oh yes and 100% stuff COVID yes. and seeing how we attempt to grapple with what is disease and death and how I don't know. It's just really interesting. And, and I've seen, um, and I'm not making judgment on anyone. I've seen all kinds of belief systems be born out of the pandemic, right? And there are camps and groups and subsets of different groups of how to approach this issue of, a sickness, illness, and it's pretty interesting, right? I think that's fascinating. That, that's a great connection to make. I think you're absolutely right that there's connections with a physical germ and impurity, and then also cultural and germs and impurity and purity. And it's not, it's, it, people think it's just happenstance, but there might be a connection between, between those, those very things that we're facing at the moment. And also how people handle, um, I mean, it's just so interesting to me how it becomes an issue. It's become an issue of morality and philosophy in the mm. dealing with the pandemic. And again, I'm not making any any judgment on it, but it's, you know, like, well, if you do this, you know, then you're stupid. Like you you see it all the time where it's like, well, if you don't do this, you're stupid. Mm. And then if you do this, you're stupid. And the people on the other side was like, well, you're doing this and that's stupid because it has. The, and it's like, yes it's crazy how there's become all this mm-hmm. like philosophical and almost like religious warring when it comes to well, dealing it's, with it's this physical problem. It's become so connected to religion and politics. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, and that's, that is so interesting how, how a germ 
made that very evident because yeah. it all comes down to what we're all grappling with, which is like death and yes. decay and mortality. And uh, I don't think we humans in our society, especially are very well equipped to handle that. We don't like death. We yes. really mm -hmm. don't like it. We don't like unhappiness. Like I'm just talking about Western culture in particular. We're very disconnected with death. We're very disconnected with birth. We're very disconnected with life processes. And when we're faced with them in a very real tangible way, I think it's extremely uncomfortable mm -hmm. for so many of us to deal with and to know how to deal with it. Mm -hmm. 100% like, beautifully said. There's mm -hmm. The philosopher and theologian Paul Tillich talked about three Three forms of nothingness, three forms of lack that we all experience. Um, and the first is death. So it's the ultimate lack, right? We're, we're decaying, we're dying, whatever one believes about the next life, we kind of are kind of entering a great unknown. Mm -hmm. And he says at a certain point in history, that was very big when people literally were dying around sure. you and all of that. Yeah. Now we hide death away. He says this, another type of lack became very predominant, which is called guilt. And guilt is a type of, I am not who I think I should be. Mm. So without, again, making it a philosophical concept, not a religious concept, guilt is just, I am somehow lacking in who I should be. Mm -hmm. And then the third form is meaninglessness, which is the idea that there is nothing that will make my life meaningful, no job, no whatever. And then Tillich says that we want to avoid that lack in our lives, those types of meaninglessness in our lives. And the name for that is scapegoating. Funnily enough, and, and Christianity is very, very important in scapegoating is scapegoating is where you can't deal with your own antagonisms and lack. So you get someone else to carry it. So the scapegoat was literally this goat where you put on all the lack of the community, all of the problems of the community and then killed the goat. Mm -hmm. So the challenge is how do we break the scapegoating mechanism and and look at the struggles that we all face? As you And you mentioned the struggle of death, decay, of guilt anxiety, meaninglessness, all of those things. How do we actually face them and not run from them? Paul Tillich called that the courage to be. The courage to be is the courage to be able to embrace your freedom and to embrace the, the, your guilt and your uncertainties. But it's very hard to do. Mm -hmm. It does go against so much of like our society. I, you know, with my daughter, she is, has been from day one obsessed with death. Yeah. Uh, she wants to talk about it all the time. She wants to always talk about relatives who have died before she was born. Um, wants to always talk to me about like, what about when you die and all these things? And it's so funny, like my knee jerk, very American Western reaction is like, we that's don't talk yeah. about that because you're mm -hmm. going to go and you're going to talk to your friends all about death and whatever. And um, I noticed when I started to resist talking about it for a while, it built anxiety in her Yes. Yeah. versus when I hmm. was like, let's talk about death all the time in a regular, healthy way and just have a conversation about it. There weren't those nightmares like there were before. Yes. And there was a different piece that's like was so strange that it, that uh, it was very, very noticeable for me with her. Yes, that's fascinating because the, the nightmares, that's called the return of the repressed is what you mm. repress returns. Mm. So you know, you can say, oh, no, be happy. Let's not talk about that. It doesn't go away. It just goes deep into, it goes into the unconscious and then it comes out in panic attacks, mm. in explosions of anger from nowhere or in dreams that are horrifying. Mm -hmm. And the irony is, as you say, when you start talking about it, you shall know the truth, the truth shall set you free is this notion that we, we repress the truth of death and lack. But actually in talking about it and bringing it to the surface, 
actually brings freedom and mm-hmm. she might be a philosopher actually as well yeah. if she likes to talk about those things <laughs> maybe that's a, that's, a, that's a good sign but yeah some parents are so unable to deal with their own unhappiness mm-hmm. that every time their child cries they have to comfort them right so and what this teaches you as you get older is is to basically suck your own thumb every time you're suffering you have to find something to make you happy it's the frenetic tyranny of happiness mm-hmm. you haven't learned that it's actually okay to be unhappy I mean, that's why, you know, it's actually, it's, it's actually very, it's almost weird to say you can be happy and being unhappy where you go, oh, I can feel sad and lonely and that's okay. Okay. Yeah. Have you ever, have you ever, um, I feel like I might've brought this up on the podcast before, but did you ever watch Louis CK's show? Just Louis? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good. Um, yes. I know. I know that there, <laughs> I, well, oh, yeah. we don't even have to go there. There's a scene in it though, that is so good where he's like, going through a horrible breakup and he's talking to the, I think he's like talking to a friend, his doctor or something. And he's like, you know, when is the last time I felt like really sad was when my life wife left me like 17 years ago. And he's like, you know what I would give to be heartbroken like you are right now, Louis? Mm. Yes, like, yes. <laughs> this is the stuff. He's yes, like, this is yes. the stuff. This is the moment. And I, I, always think about that scene. I will never forget it because he's like, this is it. This is life. You're living. Mm You're feeling so much right now. You're feeling so heartbroken and devastated and your feelings are so rich and alive and like you've never been more alive. Yes. You know, Mm -hmm. that's absolutely. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, in psychoanalysis, there's a there's a question that's often asked. And it's a funny question at first, but whenever someone's suffering, an analyst might ask, what are you enjoying in your suffering? What are you getting out of it? Because often we're getting something out of it. And often it's that very thing. It's like, it's a sense of depth. It's a sense of meaning. It's a sense of ultimate concern. And the problem is we can't see the enjoyment. So comedians are brilliant at showing this stuff. Comedians are brilliant at bringing it to the surface. But somebody else might just be caught in despair. But what he did in that in that, that character of playing himself is kind of acknowledging, well, hold on, this is painful and this is difficult. But man, I feel alive mm-hmm. and there's something that this this might make me write good poetry or mm-hmm. good comedy or become a good cook or be better with my friends or this this might actually be the fuel that that makes life meaningful. And there are movies out there and books like Brave New World, which show a kind of world where everything is perfect. And and of they're dystopious. They're, I was just talking dystopias. about that book last night. Oh, was that right? We were talking about we were actually ta- having a philosophical conversation kind of about Xanax. Ah, because nah. I was saying I, I I can be very overwhelmed with anxiety sometimes. And I'm like, Xanax is just, it's the perfect drug. It's amazing. Mm. And someone was telling me like, well, why don't you get a Xanax prescription? And I said, well, I think like it's good to have a little bit of pain in life. Yes. Like, and it's good to have a little bit of, and, and again, I'm not romanticizing pain because I know yeah, people I are always like, some. <laughs> that's not, and I'm not yeah. saying that it's bad. Mm. I'm talking about for me yes. too. Yes. You can do whatever you want with your life. This is also an important thing about living, right? Is it's yeah. like, yes, you can, you can, if you need to take 10 milligrams of Xanax a day, yes. that is your life and that is your decision. And you, if you, that's what's best for you, that's fine. I'm not, that's not what this conversation is yeah. about. It's the philosophical conversation of like, sometimes it's good for me to be uncomfortable and to to sit in that and to figure out what comes from that and i was thinking about brave new world and we were talking about like uh, it's kind of like soma in brave new world where it's this numbing and everything feels good 
but then there's like also no living going on at the same time. And, and again, not talking about this in, in terms of mental health or prescription that people need in order to be able to function, not yes. talking about that, but talking about this numbing that we all do in different ways of trying to pretend like our existence isn't what it is. Yes. And, that's very true. The, the philosopher of anxiety was Soren Kierkegaard. He wrote it. He basically developed a whole philosophy of what anxiety is. And and the interesting thing for him, and by the way, exactly what you're saying, which is we all need to numb ourselves sometimes. My goodness, of course, it's fun. Whether it's going right. to the cinema, having a drink. Yes. Doing, but mm -hmm. but if, if that was, if we completely numbed ourselves, something of our freedom would be lost. And so Soren Kierkegaard, he basically said anxiety is the evidence. He call, actually calls it spirit. Anxiety is the evidence of our freedom. Because basically he says that anxiety is a type of, you don't know what you were, your place is in the world. Mm -hmm. You don't know what other people think of you, what you should be doing, whether you should be going this way or that way. And Soren Kierkegaard says that's, that's your evidence that you're not a deterministic animal, right? You're feeling your freedom, that you don't know what you should do or who you should be. And it's, it's, it's overwhelming. But then Kierkegaard puts it beautifully. He says, you know, your anxiety is the evidence that you are free, that you're a human being. And his whole thing is actually, if we try to completely get rid of our anxiety, it would return in incredibly negative, destructive ways in yeah. our bodies, like in our bad backs, in heart attacks. And it'll come back in, in anger and in bad dreams. It, it'll return. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, is there a way for us to somehow see... I, like and almost sometimes with panic attacks, I have a friend who has panic attacks, and and he overcame them by pretty much for having to find a way to accept them. So it's really instead of fighting them, going I'm fighting this, I'm fighting this, I'm fighting this, mm -hmm. which would lead to worse symptoms. He kind of found a way to kind of slowly f accept, mm -hmm. and as he accepted it, it began to diminish. It was the irony that as you accept something that you cannot change, you change what you can accept. Mm -hmm. So the, the irony is sometimes the more we accept some aspects of ourselves, the more we can overcome them. Mm -hmm. That's a very strange irony. And, and anxiety, I think, is one of them is as we, and we may need drugs to help us, good friends, whatever. But as we see anxiety, not necessarily as uh, an enemy, but rather as the evidence of being human. It's mm -hmm. the evidence of your humanity. The symptom of the eye, the symptom yeah. of humanity yeah. of existence. <laughs> yes. I know, again, in this, yeah, this is just my personal experience, um, but I have bipolar disorder and uh -huh. also like coupling with that, like mania and panic attacks and all that stuff. And yeah. I, for myself, I was like, for a long time, I was on like a mild level of medication and then it got really bad. And so I went to a doctor who put me on a lot of medication. Mm -hmm. And for me personally, I then was like, I felt non-existent because everything was numbed out. Like I didn't feel, I didn't feel anxiety and I didn't feel like pain, but I also didn't feel joy. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like, everything was just numb. And, uh, you know, like I said, my personal experience, everyone's different. But I know for myself that I was like, I have never felt worse almost mm -hmm. in my current existence and so I went back to the doctor and I was just like I can't do this anymore yes. and um 
I like, you know, the doctor was gonna like, well, you don't feel you're not getting like all your panic attacks and like you're not having your mania or anything anymore, right? And I was like, no, but I also, <laughs> but I feel I, nothing. <laughs> I feel like an actual robot. Like I have mm. nothing yes. behind my eyes right now. And, um, and then, you know, eventually I was weaning off of it until it was like a much milder dose. But then when you were uh, using your example with your friend, I know for myself personally, when I would have then panic attacks, I started to do what your friend was talking about. And that was, it was so true for me as well, where it was like when I would try to fight my panic attacks, I would be like going straight to the emergency room because I'm like, I'm going to die. Because mm-hmm. then all my actual physical, mm-hmm. uh, all these like symptoms would happen physically to me as I was pushing it away versus then when I started to try to meditate through it, feel my fingers and toes, name what's actually present mm. in the room and it really observe my body it yeah. was a game changer for me. And it's no, it's so true. Minus the resisting constantly. Yes. It's yeah. uh, it's something like, I feel like everything's just like tied into like these life processes. So like with birth with my kids, which I know I've talked about, a t- I keep bringing up things I've talked about before, but because it's like, they're all, everything's interwoven yeah, into yeah. each other. But with both of my kids, when I gave birth to them, I noticed a huge difference. Um, when I was like, when you clench and they always teach you this in birth class, when you're having like unmedicated birth, if you're like tightening your face, if you're like squeezing your body and if you're like trying not to have the contraction happen, you experience like more pain. And I definitely felt that. And we've both talked about that is then when you just like accept it and you're like, this is a wave and it's going to come and go and it's going to be gone in a Mm -hmm. minute. And it's, it's just the moment. It's just the moment that's passing by. It is like, it's so much more to, like you can you can get so so you can cope with yes, it. Yes. And I was talking about this. Um, one of my friends um, was on mushrooms and she was like really starting to freak out. And I was like telling her kind of like I was telling her about the contraction birth thing. And I was like, this is just like a moment and it's just mm-hmm. gonna it's just gonna fluctuate. And that's just kind of how life is yesterday actually uh, i have i'll tell this on the podcast it's fun because i get to talk about things on the podcast i won't maybe on instagram or whatever but my, my friends had gave given us a bunch of like micro micro dose yeah. psilocybin yeah. then come to find out i was like this is not so much of a micro dose as i thought it was okay yeah. so i took this this micro dose of psilocybin and I was like, I'm going to hop on my Peloton and I'm going to do bike ride. Like 25 minutes into that say, bike I was ride. Say 25 miles later. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 25 minutes in, I was like, start feeling my body shifting and I start like freaking out. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> I got off my bike. I started puking just into the bushes. I was oh, right no. on my patio. I just start puking into the bushes. <laughs> but the funny thing was, is that in that moment, when I was vomiting, <laughs> I was so present in my body because I was only just feeling like the feeling of vomiting. I know it's kind of gross, but I and I hate vomiting, but I was just so present in my body in that moment that my mind wasn't even thinking about like what's going to happen next. Mm-hmm. Like I felt so good in that moment and just like sat back and I was like, whoa, that was like, even though that was like an uncomfortable experience, it was so grounding into like, what was just happening in that present moment without the fear of what's going to come in five minutes mm. or 10 minutes or yes. whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't know, but there's something in that yeah. for this conversation. I, I, I become increasingly interested, this may be an aside, but it's connected with what you're mm-hmm. talking about, is in the use of certain drugs for uh, people's kind of mental health. 
so because we're in Los Angeles, obviously it's like a psychedelic enlightenment is a sure. huge thing here. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, um, and uh, the funny thing is, and I've always been very critical of psychedelic enlightenment because at its worst, at its worst, drugs are great <laughs> because they, um, if you, uh, there's a guy called Rick Luce, uh, he's a psychoanalyst, talks about addiction, which means without uh, speech. You take drugs, you can kind of huh. enter into a place where you're kind of outside of speech and, you know, everything feels pretty wonderful. It's pretty nice. Mm-hmm. Um, however, for me, the real the real um, challenge of life is to find freedom in our speech and in the complexity of life. But I do think that certain like I, I was very prejudiced against all of this drug use only because I thought it's all people trying to tune out. But actually, I think it can be sometimes useful as a, as long as it's used as a way to kind of maybe lower anxiety levels enough that that people can begin to have very honest conversations, look mm-hmm. at their primordial traumas. Because one of the, the issues we have, and I don't know, you know, you talked about your uh, kind of personal issue there, but you know, you might experience then occasionally like what's what's called a primordial agony that mm. maybe at some point mm. just this overwhelming sense of absolute but black hole terror. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In psychoanalysis, the idea is that that is not something that's potentially going to happen. It's something that already did happen mm. in your past. You're afraid of something happening that that already did, which is good news actually, yeah. because it means that. That funnily enough, it's already happened, so you don't need to worry. But what you do need to do is find a way to confront what happened. And sometimes maybe a little bit of drugs might help. Well, my, so my <laughs> fears are actually related. I am very fearful of psychedelics. Yeah. So that it's actually sort of the opposite thing where I don't want to take, I don't want to venture into, or this has been a, a recent thing for me. I don't want to do psychedelics because I want to tune things out. I am actually so terrified of being out of control in some way of Mm. not being able to plan out and not being able to control the environment around me or what's going on in my own mind that I'm like, you know, in, in, in small doses or in a controlled environment or whatever, this could be a way for me to work through my anxiety of control, Mm -hmm. you know, of like, Uh, and accept the things that are happening to my brain or to my perception of reality. And like, it's kind of the opposite thing where I'm like, I kind of want to get to the root of that anxiety and overcome it so that, that I can feel a greater freedom and being like, I, whatever happens to me that's out of my control I can take a deep breath and ride that wave and know that it too shall pass, you yes, know? Yes, yes, yeah. Um, which is so, so hard, I think, for so many of us. And, that, and it's interesting because, yeah, that that feeling that we get and that feeling maybe being out of control or if the possibility that something horrible could happen in the future, whenever you suddenly kind of like turn it around. So Winnick, this guy, Donald Winnicott, talks about primordial agony. Um when you turn it around and go, oh, I'm afraid of something happening in the future, but actually that's just an echo of something, to be honest, something that happened in the past mm. in the family dynamic, mm. in whatever way we kind of find out it is. But if, for example, if, for example, someone, you know, had an absent father or a mother that wasn't able to mother because she was clinically depressed or something. And so there was a, there was an, there was, the, the child had to uh, look after themselves, had to comfort themselves, whatever it is. Once you start to go, oh yeah, what I'm frightened of happening in the future is it's already been in the past. And what I need to do is just find a way to put that into language, find a way mm. to put that into words, mm-hmm. find a way to 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 symbolize it. And then 
and then that will change how I look towards the future. That's um, so, and so like having a space where you can do that, whether it's taking a little bit of psilocybin, I don't know, you know, sure. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Or venturing into just a, any kind of uncomfortable yeah. experience, yeah. right? It's yes. like what you're saying earlier, challenging yourself. Yeah. Doesn't mean you have to go take a bunch of acid or whatever, yeah. but it can be like, how can I put myself in a position where I have to face yeah. the it truth be about myself? Therapy. <laughs> yeah, I, so yeah, exactly. yeah. Facing yeah. therapy about myself. Because I know for myself yeah. personally, in my, in my life, I've felt so out of control a mm. mass majority of it so that I don't have this like piece of me that I'm like, oh, I've, I've felt out of control so much mm. that it needs, now I have to name it. Yes. Right. Where yes. it's like a little bit like, okay, I have to be able to, which is why then for me, like years of therapy was helpful was because it yeah. was like, okay, now I have to name that what you're saying, that primordial thing that was like, why is that mm. there? Yes. Um, That's it. Like I yeah. controversially, I mean, I say this and I know some people I know will hate this, you know, but I go like, <laughs> but I think psychoanalysis is I, I'm skeptical of psychedelic enlightenment as a therapeutic model. These are all fine things to do. But as but but as the answer to how to uh, existentially exist within reality, sure. I think a proper analysis is important. And the reason for that is um, there's two type two other signs of the unconscious. So there's kind of the Jungian unconscious, and the Jungian unconscious is the idea that the unconscious is subconscious. It's deep within you. So mm -hmm. you might be able to take drugs or whatever, meditate, and you can find it. Journal your dreams, dreams, yeah. all that. Yeah. yeah. The Freudian unconscious is a little bit different. The Freudian unconscious is not beneath, it's within. The Freudian unconscious is when you uh, give someone advice and you're really giving yourself advice, or if you you kind of have a double meaning in something, you're, you're on the phone and you can't hear your partner and say, oh, we're breaking up, we're breaking up. And that language, we're breaking up, actually is defining the, mm. the, the state of the relationship, you know? So, and that type of unconscious I think you can only encounter through speech it's not it's not what you find deep within mm. you it's what's on the surface mm. it's it's you're always speaking the truth and if you just listen to people well they're always telling you their conflictual desires and um and so talk yeah. therapy is about helping you encounter not what's deep within you but really what's kind of weirdly on the surface mm. uh, interesting yeah. I haven't heard that perspective before I think a lot of people are trying to find I, I wonder why that is or what that says about um, culture right now, but I I know a lot of people who are trying to do other things other than talk therapy. That's yeah. like really big right now, you know, yes. like yeah. psychedelic therapy or um or hypnosis. Yes. You know, yes. when it's funny because Freud, you know, started with hypnosis and then kind of gave it up for kind of precisely this reason. You, mm. you can definitely have very immediate effects. Like if you take if you take you know M, uh, MDMA or something, sure. yeah. you're going to feel fantastic, you know, for eight hours. Mm -hmm. But um, but Freud was like. Uh, but if you want to kind of long term, just, you know, long term, be able to affirm life in its richness and its difficulties, um, he kind of went more with the talk therapy direction. So, you know, I think that's ultimately the best way to go. Well, maybe because that is the bread and butter of existence, right? Mm. It's how we move about the world with all the people that we know. It's through verbal yeah. communication. There's no other, I mean, there are there are other ways of communicating, but it's how we communicate with strangers, yes. you know, with We're creatures children, of language, with, yeah. Right. We are creatures of language. We are fundamentally speaking creatures. So yeah, exactly. Um, and, and speech is a funny thing. A speech is, uh, there's always miscommunication in speech. There's speech is a, language is like a dictionary. 
where every word points to a different word. You mm -hmm. can never find a word that just is right. the object. Sure. Right? Yeah. So yeah. it's, it's, it's basically this big map of of just moving from space to space and meaning arises out of that. Mm. And so that's why that's why there's misunderstandings and difficulties. But um, that's yeah, that's where the meat is. Well, and also that is why it's words are so important. Mm. And it's interesting. Uh, one of my someone I know was posting something about like making fun of how um, Dove Soap Company, they decided that they weren't going to start using the word normal in their like, you know, in lotion, how it'd be like uh, okay. oily or dry uh, or normal. They decided mm -hmm. they weren't going to use the word normal because a lot of people uh, in studies that they did, it made them feel whatever type of way. And the person who posted about it was like kind of making fun of that. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, but that's like the basics of linguistics. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. the way we see the world is influenced by the verbiage we have for it. Mm -hmm. Like there was this really interesting podcast where this tribe that this sociologist went to had a certain word for a particular type of grief. Mm -hmm. It was like, it was, it was a word for an emotion of that. We don't have a word for this pain of like mm. losing a child. And it was a specific word. And the sociologist said that because this tribe had this word for this feeling, it was so much able, it was so much easier for the people to, experience that and to cope with it properly mm. because there was a name for it so then their pain was defined in a way that made them feel like seen and accepted for that feeling yeah. and i think it just goes to show like how i'm and even when you learn another language like i'm going through spanish right now different cultures and different languages frame I wish I had a good example off the top of my head, but the way that we use the words of like, I do this, or you are doing this to me. Like um, in Spanish, you know, instead of you say like, I'm going to bed in Spanish, it's like, I am putting myself in bed. And it's just like, you view, you view the reality differently yes. when you shift around words. So like, it is important. So when you make fun of something like a soap company, like taking out the word normal, like that's actually a really big shift in the way people view themselves mm -hmm. and like, even something as silly as like dry skin, mm. it all informs the, our reality. Yeah, mm. yeah. No, language is always shifting in interesting ways. There's this is this maybe yeah. We'll see if there's a there's an idea in psychoanalysis, and it's I think it's easy enough to understand maybe. But the idea that some words um, have this weird um, significance to us, and then they appear in different parts of our lives. And actually, what you should do if you're listening to someone's dream is see what words recur. So, for example, somebody might be very lazy, right? They're very lazy. They don't do much. And you find out and they also uh, they collect they like pens, they like a ni nice pens. And um, and they also work at this train station. And then you kind of look and you go, oh, stationary. They're stationary. They collect <laughs> stationary. They work at a train station. And you find this word stationary and it, it keeps coming up at different parts of their lives. And suddenly you start making connections between very different parts of the person's life that are connected with this weird nexus of a word or somebody who hates charity. I hate charity. I hate charity. Then maybe you find out that their, their sister was called charity and they had a <laughs> problem with their sister, but the word charity now is coming up in a different area. So it's interesting analysis when you listen to people's words yeah. and because what often you find, and it's the weirdest thing is that people, the way they love work, hang out with people, all of these things that are so disparate are often connected in some very interesting way. And there's usually a signifier, some words that connect all of these different things. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, um, 
Yeah, I'll have to think of an example. But yeah, it's it's interesting when you start to keep an eye out for it. It's, it, it's fascinating. Hmm. Um, oh my God, now all of a sudden, I'm going to be so interested in Evan's dreams. Normally he's like, oh my God, I had the craziest dream. I'm like, I don't want to hear about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be like, tell me all about your dreams. Yeah. So how does this all tie back uh, in to the resurrection? Yes. Yes, and I had one question oh. with that. Actually. Oh, no, or the crucifixion too. Yeah, yeah, I was gonna say. So, so we were like, when we're having this this uh, discussion, and we're talking about like the death of God, mm -hmm. right, and like what the philosophy of that is. What then is the philosophy piece of the idea of the resurrection? Uh, like, what is the what is behind that that needs to be part of the story? Yes, absolutely. In a nutshell, I would say that the resurrection is this notion that. God is not an object that you love, but a reality you experience within love. So what you find, now that's a religious way of putting it, but in the Bible, you'll notice that, you know, God is an object that you love. But then in the later post-resurrection text, it says, where two or three are gathered together in love, <laughs> there I am. Mm. And if you say you love God, but don't love your neighbor, you're lying, right? So there's this really interesting shift. And what we've been describing here is, is a type of shift from the idea that the sacred, as in that thing that will make us happy and joyful and make us feel less anxious, is not an object that we love, but rather is a reality that we encounter when we love, when we do the work of love, mm -hmm. the work of loving your kids, the work of loving your neighbor, the work of kind of caring for others, that weirdly, when you give up the notion of the absolute as as an object, the absolute does return. Um, I don't know if I talked about this in the last time I was here, but it's very similar to, there's a philosopher, Shizek, talks about a magic trick. So if I do a coin trick with you, um, or say I take this ring and I, oh, drop it, <laughs> I make it disappear. <laughs> yeah. So th the first part of the trick is I show you the ring and that's the pledge. Mm -hmm. The second part of the trick is the turn, which is the disappearance of the mm -hmm. ring. I do some hocus pocus, right? And by the way, hocus pocus comes likely from hoc est corpus, which is what the priest says during mass when the bread and wine become body and blood. Oh, so wow. yeah, so the magicians are playing with that. So a bit of hocus pocus, the ring disappears. And then that's the turn. And then the prestige is when I pull the ring from behind your ear or whatever and go like, there, it, it's yeah. returned, right? So there's the pledge, the turn and the prestige. I would say that the crucifixion is this model. Hmm. The pledge is a sacred object. The problem with all of us is something that will make us whole and complete. In the crucifixion, oh, and by the way, if you think about the Temple of Jerusalem, um, which is uh, the temple in the Bible where there's the court of Gentiles, everyone can hang out. There's a massive curtain and behind the curtain, there's the Holy of Holies, right? Mm -hmm. So there behind, behind the curtain is the thing that will make you happy. In the Bible, the curtain rips. Just like, a, just like a magician goes hocus pocus and rips back a curtain. When Jesus dies, right? Like yep. at that right moment when he breathes his last breath. Exactly. At that moment when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very moment when you realize the absolute is self-divided, right? The curtain rips and you see there's nothing in the Holy of Holies. There is no sacred object, right? That's called the death of God. That's the nihilistic moment of Christianity mm -hmm. where there's, there's nothing there. There's nothing there. But the trick doesn't end because you always have to have the return, right? Now, the funny thing about a magic trick is if I make a coin disappear, the one that I make reappear isn't the same coin. You think it is, but it's not, right? If I make a dove reappear, it's not the same dove that I sure. make disappear. That's dead, right? Yeah. But we think it's the same dove. The, the resurrection for me is the third part of the magic trick where the sacred returns. 
But as I said, the sacred now is no longer an object that you love, but the depth dimension in love itself. That for me is resurrection. It's where you go, oh, the, the difficult work of love, of justice, of, of, of looking out for one another, of struggle. Oh, that's where meaning is. Not at the end goal, whenever I can retire by the beach. Not utopia. Not the right. utopia. Yeah, this is like, this is the critique of utopia. It is the embrace of a constant, wonderful struggle. Um, that's called, the, that's where death is robbed of its sting, the death of death. We go like, oh, this is freedom. And in religious terms, it's called the collective of the Holy Ghost, which is the collective of people loving each other. And by the way, you see this in the Eucharist, right? So you've got the three parts of the magic trick, the bread and the wine. That's the sacred right there. Then you've got the turn. You consume it. It's disappeared. And then you have the prestige, which is you're sitting there going, what do I do next? And then you see someone, you know, he's lost their job and you get up and you say, oh, listen, I, I think I can help you out. And you realize you are the prestige. That's the third part. That's resurrection, where mm -hmm. you are the body of God in the world. And that's post-theism and atheism. That is just... The experience of saying, as I give myself over to the people around me, that is where real depth and meaning is found. Mm. Hmm. That's like, especially currently right now, and like what you're saying with the, with the state of like how impactful holidays are and like even tradition is right now, it seems like such an important concept to like really sit in right now yeah. when there has been so much loss this year and i think so much of I'll, I'll call myself out my tendency is to try to mute it out by being happy or with social media or reality tv mm -hmm. or just like just distract myself constantly and not experience the pain job loss family loss mm -hmm. um a world completely shifted and this, the perspective now of thinking about it from this like a Good Friday to resurrection, mm -hmm. that at the end, that's what brings like life and joy. Yes, a hundred percent. And and it's so difficult. Like it, it hopefully it helps people feel a little bit more grace for others. Whenever mm -hmm. you see someone who cannot face their own darkness, who has to project it out onto other people, who has who can't tolerate their own kind of darkness and dirt it's probably because of actually some trauma some deep trauma that that is very very difficult to look at and very difficult to face so they have to project it out and identify it externally to them um, but the challenge is the courage to be the courage to find a way to be able to look at those primordial agonies those traumas maybe our family where there was um, we weren't mothered or fathered well and there's some sense in which something was missing from our past going like how do we have grace for ourselves and each other to be able to look at those things and i think as we're able to we will become healthier people and we'll have a healthier society mm. but otherwise we get it a scapegoating if we can't look at our darkness we'll get someone to carry it that's the old trick is if i can't look at my own lack i will find someone and i will put it on them um uh, i'll let someone else carry what i can't carry mm. But mm -hmm. I need to learn how to carry my own burdens first. Right. And it might be unconscious too. You might oh, be yeah, it, it's unconscious. almost always unconscious. Yeah. You're forcing someone to bear the burden of whatever trauma, whatever you've experienced. And then you're, it's the cycle that keeps self-perpetuating cycle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
It's mm-hmm. fine. And yes, yeah, the unknown face. You go like, oh, that I've made you angry. I've made you for sure. I've said that you're the, the horrible person because there's something of that in me. You're you're my unknown face. And uh, and then once you see that, then you can become free of it. But it takes time. It takes therapy. It takes like help from friends. You know? You know what's so interesting is I was just even thinking about the ways that we depict things like the crucifixion of the way we even try to sterilize the pain and suffering of mm. that experience, even in uh, the symbol of the crucifix. Yeah. You know, we put when we put the little cloth oh, over yes. Jesus' genitals, That's you right. know, mm-hmm. we're purifying the experience and being like trying to give him a little bit more dignity or a little less shame in that experience when it yes. was like the ultimate shameful just like the complete opposite of dignity. It's just interesting how we even try to cover, cover up those parts because we can't face them and look at them. Even when we're trying to celebrate Mm -hmm. that event, that was uh, the return from ultimate suffering and, and, and death. Right. Yes. And this is, this is dialectics, uh, which um, the idea in dialectics, the idea is that in order to find joy, you have to go into the dark you can't kind of go a middle road and you can't kind of try to hide from the dark. It's like if you've got a choice between a, a, a narrow road and a wide road, everything tells you to pick the, the wide, but you pick the narrow. Whenever you've got the choice of life or death, like in love, either living for myself or loving someone and dying to myself, you choose death. Uh, every time you go to an uh, therapy you're going like well i just want to be happy i don't want to look at my darkness but the therapist makes you look at the darkness but the point is when you go into death you find life you you give yourself over and sacrifice Mm -hmm. to your children and you go like weirdly this 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 death act where i died in myself i feel most alive you go into the darkness the most you actually find then the light you take the narrow path and you find that actually that is the wide one so Whenever we try to cover over the, the, the Christ, we're trying to clean it up. We kind of miss the point of, of the philosophical point of the crucifixion, which is you have to go fully into the death. Yeah. And only when you go fully into the death will you find the resurrection. Can you experience the freedom, right? Yes. Well, they say you can't have Friday without Sunday. Exactly. That's it. Or you can't have Sunday without Sunday Friday. Sunday without Friday. Yes, that's right. Yes. <laughs> there was a famous preacher yeah. who said, it's, so, it's, uh, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Uh, <laughs> Tony Campolo, he was called. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. like, no, no, no. You can't have Sunday without the Friday. But you cannot. Yeah, that's it. And it's called, uh, traditionally called the, the cloud of unknowing and the dark night of the soul. There's all these beautiful names for this, this process of going like, damn, I have to go right into the darkness. And the funny thing is, if you avoid the darkness, that's relatively easy. You've got lots of liturgical st- strategies for that, drugs and alcohol and movies, and we can, lots of ways to avoid it. Mm-hmm. But whenever we're willing to go into it, um, that's when we really need help. That's when we really need friends who are open to going there with us, or we need therapy, or, we, you know, it's it's easy to try to avoid the suffering. Mm-hmm. Yes. Actually, we, you know, it's very hard to, to take this journey. It takes courage. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. So much more we could keep saying on that, but no. I think this conversation has been so fantastic, and we really oh, appreciate yeah. you well, being I here. I love being back. Thank this has you been so fantastic. Much. Thank I feel you so like much. this is yeah, this is such a this will be such a nice time. This is coming out on Thursday, so the day before Good Friday, just a nice oh. way to kind of enter into this 
holiday, however you spend it, just from a philosophical perspective. And a new world, you know, like we're we're emerging Mm -hmm. out of this world that we've been living for the past year, especially Mm -hmm. in Los Angeles. I know it's crazy. I'm so I'm, uh, yeah, this traveling for the first time in May. I'm going back to Belfast now because it's opening up and uh, I'm doing an online festival. If anybody's actually liked this stuff. Yes, please. Can you plug away for us? I'll do do one plug. Um, (laughs) I'm doing this festival, online festival, music and art and ideas. And the theme is Chaosmos. Chaosmos was a word by invented by James Joyce uh, to describe chaos and cosmos, order and disorder, that they're interlinked and interwoven. So if people like the themes of this, I'm going to be looking at that a lot more at the Wake Festival so they can find out more on my website. It's called Wake, which is an Irish name for like a funeral. Oh, okay. And that's on your website. That's on my website. Okay. Well, we will have that in the episode notes, Broads. Also your podcast. Oh, yes. Yes. yes, Working away on that. The Fundamentalists. Amazing. Okay. (laughs) We'll put that link. That's an excellent podcast with your friend, Broads, Uh, if you haven't checked it out. It's been fantastic. I've been listening to it a lot recently. Um, It'll all be in the episode notes below. And um, thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. All right, Broads. Chat soon. Chat soon. Bye-bye.